Hello everyone and welcome back to the Just Interesting People podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in for today's episode. My name is Rosie and I'm here with my co-host and husband Jeremy and today we are talking to Casey. So I'm going to pass over to Jeremy to introduce him properly but thank you so much for being here and we really hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you guys for tuning in once again. Uh, Thank you very much Casey for being with us today. Thanks for inviting me, I'm happy to be here. It's funny, you are Already, it's already tomorrow for you because we are literally at the other side of the world. Like we pre- probably can't get any further from each other. <laughs> uh, we are in Miami, Florida. You are in South Korea. Seoul, South like, Korea. Coming to you live from Seoul, South yeah. Korea. <laughs> so we have like 14 or 15 hours difference. <laughs> uh, but we're making it happen. Um, so, yeah, before we dive into the episode, just a quick thing like how did I find you? Um, I was watching something about uh, North Korea recently on TV, on Netflix. And and after that, I was browsing online and I went on Instagram just to see, ju- just to read a few things about North Korea. And I found an account um, called um, Teach North Korea Refugee. And so, yeah, I went through reading about it and 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 then I saw you. So you are the co-founder of this non-profit, this organization, and you help refugees from North Korea to learn English mainly, and 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 you help them start a new life. Let's put it this way. <laughs> mm. um, so yeah, I got in touch with you, and I thought, well, let's. It'd be great to get in touch. It'd be great to record an episode because there is a lot we could talk about. So. Here we are. We're making it happen. <laughs> All right, fantastic. I can let our social media team know they're, they're successful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the beauty of social media, right? Yeah, right? We are at the other side of the world. We met, met each other and a week later, we are here recording. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's dive right in. Uh, before we get into the South Korea part of your life, let's start from the beginning because uh, you're born in America. So... Where did you grow up? What's your upbringing? Uh, I'm from Missouri City, Texas. It's a small <laughs> little um, suburban city outside of Houston, Texas. And so that's where I grew up um, until college. Then I went to Harvard where I got a bachelor's and then a master's degree in education from the Harvard Grad School of Education. Uh, then I went overseas for the first time and um, actually went to Taipei, Taiwan first, just wanted to see the world, uh, then Seoul, Korea. And then I went back to the USA and I started working at the Cato Institute, uh, first as a staff writer, then later an education policy analyst there. And that was my first real professional job in the USA. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I, I actually, I edited, co-edited a book on educational freedom I also had a radio talk show and uh, testified for Congress, involved in lots of things. So that was like the really the start of my you know, professional career. Of your journey, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you study in Harvard? Uh, so undergrad social sciences and okay. grad was education. Okay. And where is this passion for education and educational freedom coming from? Mm-hmm. What's the root of that? Yeah, I would say it started when I was 12 years old and I read all three of Frederick Douglass's books. Uh, he was the escaped slave who became a leading abolitionist. 
and I was inspired by his words, by his actions, uh, when he talked about respecting the individual, about the importance of educating yourself, not just having others educate you, because he basically taught himself how to read. Um, so I was inspired by him from a young age, so much so that I, I convinced my parents during a family trip to drive from Texas and to, instead of just um, um, going up a couple of states, to keep going to Washington, D.C. Mm. to visit the Frederick Douglass home. Oh, wow. um, so, and you know, I mean, the, the child is so much into it, read the books and, you know, quoting the guy. So I guess they thought it was worthy. Um, and, and then, I mean, it's like a special moment in my life as an adult when I actually delivered a talk to the Frederick Douglass Memorial and Historical Social Society um, as uh, the keynote speaker. So, wow. and joined the board of directors. So, but anyway, it started from there, uh, from a young age and just, just realizing the importance of the individual and that people need education in order to have more choices and to be able to take advantage of the choices in this world. Uh, so it started from a young age. So, and if people look at my career, that's always been the thing I focused on is educational freedom. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting and amazing to find this calling at 12 years old, like to have <laughs> this kind of interest. I mean, at 12 years old, like I don't I don't know what I was reading, but probably not that. <laughs> I was reading like gossip magazines about Spice Girls and like running around in the garden. I was not reading like good books. Yeah, no, by yeah, long yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's starting that young and having this kind of mindset about I'm going to read this book and, and, and what's coming is I'm going to help other at 12 years old. That's mm. pretty amazing <laughs> for yeah, a start. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> Um, and what's the reason, uh, why did you decide to go traveling after getting your degree? When I guess most people, you know, like get your degree, get a job, mm -hmm. do all these things. And you said, no, I'm going to go traveling. Yeah. In fact, that's it. I mean, uh, actually I got a couple of job offers coming out of, uh, of grad school and just thought, would I really like to just be like an intern or perhaps I could go and do something interesting. Um, you know, I was young and had uh, different possibilities, but why not just go see the world? Why not just go live in a different country while I was young without the responsibilities that you're more likely to have when you get older? Right. So yeah. I just got on a plane and went to Taipei, Taiwan with very few plans. Why did you pick Taiwan? Yeah, Any gonna... particular reason? But, well, there were a couple of countries I was considering. I was considering Taiwan, China, um, Japan, Korea, France. Those are the ones that I had on kind of my target list. But for various reasons, I eliminated the others. Uh, well, China, and you know, I, I hope nobody gets mad, but when I was young, I heard that, oh, you might have to carry your own toilet paper around you with you. I was like, I don't think I want to live. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, and, and then I thought about Japan, and I thought about Korea, I uh, thought about Taiwan, and then Taiwan, uh, and I thought about France because I do have some relatives from France. My great, great, grandmother was from your, France. Your last name sounds a bit French. Yeah, right, exactly. So Yeah, uh, when I saw it, I was L'Artigue. That sounds... <laughs> <laughs> right, so that's it. So then, so on my... Uh, so, um, that, so that was part of the reason I thought about going there because I do have some relatives there and my family name, obviously there's some connection. But then I thought, uh, I'd prefer to get away as far as possible from my family and just... <laughs> Go somewhere different. So, so then I crossed France off the list, 
And then just pretty much decided, oh, you know what, I'll try Taiwan. I had a couple of friends from grad school there. What was it like when you first arrived in Taiwan? Because it must be a huge culture shock to go from the States to then, I mean, I've never been personally, but what, mm. what was that experience like for you? Yeah, well, actually, I'm one of those people, I don't really believe in culture shock. I, really? I, mm. I think that when, when people go to a new country, if you're still looking back and saying, well, it's just like the other where I'm from, they do it like this. Well, you know what? You're not there. Hmm. I mean, you're going to a new place. So I went there expecting things to be different. And if things had been the same, I would have why did I pay money to come here? <laughs> I mean, yeah. so I was, I was really expecting a different experience. So if something was different, I was like, oh, okay, yeah. So I, I see, I understand. And actually, I can mention two things. So when I first went there, um, so in, in Taiwan, when you go to a store and they return your money to you, um, back then it was still cash, you know, not so much credit cards, but, um, <laughs> and when they return money to you, they wouldn't hand it to you, they would put it on a counter. Um, and some people thought it was rude, but I just observed and said, they do it to each other. They're not just doing it to you as a foreigner. Why are you so upset? <laughs> yeah, but they won't put the money in my hand. It's okay because that's just the way it's done in yeah. Taiwan. And now looking at COVID and all that, maybe it's not such a bad <laughs> idea. But yeah, yeah. So, so I went there kind of expecting it. And when I would meet people kind of complaining, I'd be like, you know what? Seems like um, there's some people who are ready to travel and some people who are not ready to travel. And actually, I read a great book years ago uh, by Paul Fussell. Um, he was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And he talked about that there are three different kinds of people who travel. And he said that one group are the um, travelers, another group are the explorers, and the other group, another group are the tourists. And so the explorers, they're ready to go and see another place. Those are the people who go backpacking. I mean, they just will go and dive into that other culture. And then you got the people who are the travelers, who I, I consider myself to be. So you're not going to see them really like out in the countryside or backpacking or doing something really daring, but they'll go and live in the other place and, you know, enjoy it. And then you have the tourist who is like an American. It's like, I have to go to McDonald's. I need KFC. <laughs> they want to go to the familiar places. So I think a lot of the people who have culture shock are the people who are in that kind of tourist group. Uh, and I think some of the travelers initially, they might have some of it, uh, but the explorers, I mean, they're like, hey, great. <laughs> they yeah, dump it on my head. Fantastic. <laughs> we are the explorers. <laughs> okay. Yeah, explorers and travelers, maybe. <laughs> like going back backpacking and being in the middle of nowhere, mm. having no clue where we're going. Yeah. Oh, if that happened to me, that means bad planning because there's no way I'm going to end up. <laughs> in We've done that before. Yeah. <laughs> no, no and way. And we, we ended up in Indonesia in a cyber coffee, which was a room with a 20 years old computer mm. on the floor <laughs> to find something for the day after. That was like, yeah, we've done that many times. <laughs> oh, no. oh, no. I would not have been there with you. So. <laughs> and if I had been, I would have been complaining. Whose stupid idea was this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so after traveling, you went back to the US, you went back to mm. DC. Uh, and that's when you started to get involved into the educational freedom movement, let's say. Right. Uh, and so 
you were working to help uh, lower income families, children to go to school and to get scholarships and everything, right? Okay, so I was uh, first. I started as a staff writer at the Cato Institute, so I was basically their in-house reporter. Mm -hmm. uh, that was uh, my real start, and then um, I uh, was promoted to education policy analyst. And as I was looking at education issues, I'm, I kept looking. I'm in Washington D.C., and the schools here are terrible. Hmm. It, what can I do? Um, so I started meeting with parents and school people and local city leaders and just trying to get an understanding of how, uh, and actually I remember asking myself a couple of questions and one of them was how long, uh, so first of all, is this system failing? And then number two, if it's failing, how long has it been failing? And then number three, if it's been failing, um, how long have the people in charge known about it? And number four, what can be done about it? Um, so I went in basically as a researcher slash activist. I'm going to do something. I'm going to make a difference uh, with this. So I, I, I did a, a study on the public schools in Washington, D.C., going back to the founding in 1804, um, wow. including Thomas Jefferson as one of the founders of the school system. Uh, I guess he's maybe the trustee. I've got his exact role, but but the, going back to the beginning and trying to figure out basically where did things go wrong and how long have the people known it? And so uh, my conclusion was that yeah, the the children in the school system should not be forced to remain in the lousy schools here. Um, that they should have the option to go to a school, if it's a private school or a charter school, where they can find the best possible education for themselves. So I was one of the people, not the main person, uh, but I was one of the people who helped push for the Washington DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. So I mean, giving speeches, churches and the community, going into the really bad neighborhoods of Washington DC, uh, talking about um, you know the opportunities that the children could have if we could pass this legislation uh, and testifying before Congress, radio, TV, wherever. I mean, I was just all over the place. Um, and so, and they were successful. And then 1,800 Washington DC school children were then able to go to school, um, uh, to private schools using um, the um, tuition money from the government. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, well, it was a, I mean, amazing experience. and. Uh, but it's like uh, I heard one time one um, colleague of mine, uh, actually one of my mentors, said that um, like being in the military, he said that it was a million dollar experience that he would never do for a million dollars again. So it's the kind of thing I went through an incredible experience, but I'm not sure I would do it again. Because <laughs> I was a young man then. I mean, now I'd be like, mm, I don't know, <laughs> a little bit tough. Um, so, but no, it was a really great experience and I learned a lot and I learned lots of lessons because um, I got to meet some of the uh, people in the civil rights movement from the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what was interesting is that some of them were strongly opposed to the position, um, but they credited us with having a different strategy. And, and, and um, let me simplify. So um, a lot of them were just opposed to any kind of school choice because uh, they thought you should try to fix the public schools. And we came up with a different pro uh, proposal, and that is that the public schools should get some money also, not just for the private schools, 
private schools, charter schools, uh, public schools. And so then I remember talking to um, one of the leading people um, as far as um, registering people to vote in the 1960s. And he had told me that um, he would not oppose what we were doing because he really believed the sincerity. And he could see that we were really concerned that the people could have the choice to go to the best possible school. It was not an attack on the public schools. Hmm. And then like meeting with Marion Barry, who he was the mayor of Washington, D.C. for a number of years. And I was talking to him and I asked him, why did you switch your position? And he said, I didn't switch my position. I said, uh, okay. 1981, you were against it. <laughs> now you're for <bored>. it. <laughs> and he says, look, I didn't switch my position. The situation changed. And there was a different proposal. So I was I could support this one where all three sectors were receiving support. So uh, so anyway, I learned lots of lessons from that experience, the reality of politics, uh, <laughs> dealing with congressmen and others. So it was a really a great, great learning experience for me, which prepared me for the kind of work that I'm doing now, by the way. Yeah. yeah. And so after that, you went back to South Korea because you've but, been there yeah, years before. Later. So, yeah. um, and, and it was kind of a, uh, just one of those coincidences. Um, some South Koreans were visiting from the USA and they were visiting the organization I worked with. And um, I'd met some of them before. And so we're just talking. I said, you know what, maybe I could go back to Korea one day. Uh, and they're like, yeah, maybe. And so I got in touch with them again, stayed in touch. And then a couple of years later, we're just talking. I said, you know what? I think I will go there. And then uh, we worked it out. And I came here as a visiting fellow uh, with the Center for Free Enterprise. And then later on, I moved to a different place uh, called Freedom Factory. And But I met some North Korean refugees um, along the way. So that's kind of changed my whole life. But but yes, um, that was the next move. That was a big move. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I think it was kind of easy since I had been here before. Right. And and it was almost like you know what I had such a great experience. Was it just because I was a young man with no no responsibilities <laughs> and no career and nothing like that? Um, yeah. What would what would it be like to go back? And so I decided, yeah, I'll do it. And did you feel also that your your work in in DC you 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 were done with it like you've done as much as you could or wow you know what you you hit on it actually because I helped create that one program and um, in that field um, usually it's not common to be able to focus on an area where you are when you're working at like a national think tank uh, mm -hmm. but I was able to do it. So in some ways, there might have been some limitations if I had continued um, working there. Um, so, but also, it, it was almost like it was such a struggle to get it done. And right. I mean, that's the best reality if you want to get into any kind of public policy. You cannot expect quick changes, quick successes. But actually, we had a quick success. It took us less than <laughs> two years. And that's like lightning speed when it comes to like making some change <laughs> yeah. when you start a campaign. Um, But also still, there was the kind of like, you know what? Yeah, I'd been to Korea when I was young. Why not? Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. But you didn't move to Korea to do anything about helping refugees at the beginning. That was no. not the purpose. You just 
that's something that just happened along the way by meeting people and 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 seeing what's going on, right? Yeah, and you know, it's kind of funny because a number of years ago, I wrote a column where I mentioned North Korean refugees in passing, but I had never met any, and I never thought I would meet any. Mm. Um, but when I came back to South Korea, um, you know, I met some, but it was just like, just friends. You know, right. I wasn't thinking about doing any particular work because I was like, well, what can I do? I mean, I had no idea about any kind of difference that I could make. And when I get involved with something, I want to make a difference. Uh, I'm not just someone who just kind of joins up with the cause. I, I will, I, people will know that I'm there. Um, so I will get involved. Um, so I, I didn't see any kind of role for myself. So, yeah, wow. But I, I will say I was so humble in meeting them because I'm someone who had been talking about freedom, talking about educational freedom. And now here I am in front of some people who they had to escape the freedom. And I felt like, oh, before I was just like a guy at like a cocktail party toasting the freedom. And that I maybe, and I think I had done some good things before. And, um, but yeah, nothing like what they had to go through in order to get the freedom. So it just, it just kind of woke me up, but also it just felt like, well, I, I don't know what to do because <laughs> it's just so big. Yeah. Mm. Would you mind sharing with us some of the things that they would say, like in terms of what they struggled with in North Korea, if you can remember mm. what like the straws they oh, went sure. through? Sure. Actually, uh, anyone who's interested, there are books that have been published by some of the North Korean refugees uh, talking about uh, their experiences in North Korea as well as their escapes. Um, so first of all, just briefly about North Korea. Um, North Korea is a cult with, a, with the military and now with a nuclear bomb. And so, um, in, and so from 1950 to 53, the Korea, Korea's two sides fought, I mean, um, fought a war. And then uh, before that, uh, the leader, Kim Il-sung, the founder of North Korea, um, just began to impose this personality cult on the country. And he was the leader of it for almost five decades. And so basically the government just took care of people, but also it great, it controlled them. They could not leave the country um, without the threat of being shot or being executed. Um, so, so that was until 1994. And then he died and his son took over and it continued the reign of terror. Um, until he died in 2011, and now his son, Kim Jong-un, uh, is now the leader of the country. And so they, they have, and I won't say total control, but basically they control uh, almost every aspect of the lives of North Koreans. Um, as I said, they're not allowed to leave the country without permission, and if they do, you know, they can be executed or tortured. Not only that, but their family members can be executed or tortured. And so... Um, it's yeah, it's just it's it's a dictatorship that has continued to survive now for 70 years. Um, so lots of people have lots of stories about terrible things that happened to them. But actually, I mean, I mean, I don't want to say ironic, but some North Korean refugees say that the worst part is actually the escape, because if they make it to China, they're then you know illegal. Uh, migrants there, or I guess that's what we call them, I, I think illegal migrants, and um, they can be taken advantage of. Uh, a lot of the women are sold into slavery, are bought as wives by um, Chinese families or men or whatever, um, girls as young as 13 years of age. 
Um, so it's just a really terrible situation. So, so they escape from a terrible dictatorship, but then they escape with guns at their backs because they cannot really return to the country, uh, return mm -hmm. to North Korea without, you know, without serious punishment. Uh, so, so it's a difficult thing. So, so I'm just like listening to these things and just about like the torture and other things happening to people just for trying to take advantage of the human freedom of being able to travel. You know, for those of us, we just take it for granted. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe not so much these days because of the virus, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, we just take travel for granted. Uh, but for North Koreans, that's not the, it's not the same thing. Yeah, we, we, I guess that's when you realize that travel and just like freedom of speech, watching what you want, reading what you want, doing what you want yes yes because i mean the like the, the level of control there is is brainwash in a yes. sense it's conditioning right right like, right right from a young age north koreans are conditioned and brainwashed yeah. to worship the leaders uh, education in north korea is propaganda uh, and some north korean refugees tell the story that for example when they were studying math that it would be okay so There are 10 Yankee bastards walking down the street, and then you kill five of those Yankee bastards. You know, how many Yankee bastards are left? So wow. that's the way they learn math, that everything is about propaganda and for the benefit of the state. And they try to keep outside information from the country and, you know, foreign media, TV, movies, and all that, just so that people will only watch. Uh, the North Korean things, and they'll, they can watch a couple things from a couple of countries like India or China, but things are screened um, yeah. by the government. Yeah, I have a question. I don't know if I don't know if you'll know or if it's relevant or whatever, but um, the people living there, do they realize that it's a problem? Because I know you said a lot of people try and escape, and if they do, mm. they still suffer afterwards, and they can, you know, be tortured and killed and things. Mm. Like, do the vast majority of people living there just put up with it? Or do they realize that it's something wrong? Or do they not quite realize that this is happening and that the rest of the world isn't like this? Like, does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does make sense. Uh, okay, so, uh, and this depends on what you mean, because um, there's some North Korean refugees. Actually, I remember talking to one young man, and he said that even when I started to learn about the outside world, escaping to it felt like I was trying to escape to the moon that it just seemed to be so difficult uh, uh, to do it. <clears throat> All right, so, and then there are some people who, it, it depends on where you are, you are in North Korea. So if you live along the border, you're more likely to be able to listen to like, I mean, to watch Chinese television and to, to see some things. Um, but um, there's one writer, his name is Jan Jin Song. Uh, he's a North Korean who was actually part of the elite. He was, uh, uh, his name was, uh, his title was like psychological warfare officer. Um, so yeah, put that on a business card. <laughs> 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 psychological warfare officer. I don't uh, even want to know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he says that, and he escaped about 15 years or so ago. And he said that the way the North Korean government has set it up, if you run away from a country Not only do you betray the country, but you betray your family. Because the way the North Korean government has set it up, that three generations can be punished. So that means not only you are in trouble, but whatever, your mother, your father, your children, if you have any. So they will make it so that you feel 
um, the, the feel burned or whatever, you get punished by um, your actions and not just you. All right, so there have been a couple of high profile North Korean refugees who've escaped, and one of them, his name is Tae Young Ho. He escaped four years ago. He was a North Korean uh, diplomat uh, based in the UK. Oh, yeah. uh, he escaped, I and I mean, it was, of course, it was a big deal. Well, he knows, he says he knows, and he's been told that all of his family members were executed um, in retaliation uh, for him escaping because he's considered to, to be the worst kind of traitor uh, because he was actually conditioned, or sorry, um, he was groomed to be a spokesperson for North Korea. Mm -hmm. So it meant that, I mean, he was basically trusted in a way that others are not. Um, so so, so my, my point is that if you're someone who's in the countryside, if you're a diplomat, if you are a regular citizen, whatever the case may be, even if you know about the outside world, it's still, so, it's still really dangerous for you uh, to escape. And not only that, your family members and others. So uh, I'd like to give a speech where I talk about and I compare the North Korean system to the U.S. system. And I say that, okay, so for example, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is beloved by many people now. All right, so you know, he gave the, uh, the uh, March on Washington speech in 1963. He's loved these days, not so much when he was alive, but he's loved mm -hmm. these days. All right, so uh, 1968, he was uh, assassinated. Okay, Martin Luther King Jr. began his activities in 1955. For 13 years, he was raising hell across the USA. Right? If he had been in North Korea, he would not have lasted a week. Hmm. I mean, they would have just killed him. I mean, there would have been nothing about, you know, negotiate or talk yeah. or yeah. here is, you know, we'll go to the Supreme Court. I mean, there's none of that in North Korea. Just you are executed. And not only that, but your family members could be executed. And your family members might tell on you because they know if they don't, that they can be in trouble. Hmm. So... So it's just, it's, uh, and, and I mentioned the writer, John Jin Song, the former psychological warfare officer. Uh, he said that um, there are two reasons that North Korea continues to survive to today. And one of them is the reason I just said, the three C policy of punishing three different generations. Uh, but he said the other reason is that people still look at North Korea as being a normal country. And he said, it's not. That it's a cult. And it's a cult that's willing to kill whoever. Um, threatens it, and if any of the people in the country threaten it or attack it or criticize it, that they would just wipe them out. So it's not a normal country. Yeah, I didn't know about them harming family members as well. Like I think that just brings it to a whole new level. Because if you think, oh well, I might die. Okay, well I'll risk it. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, having to say to yourself, yeah. okay, well I'll risk it, but then I also might risk my parents' life and my right. grandparents' lives or my like that's such a huge decision and such a huge burden to try and grapple with and figure out you know is it worth trying to risk it is it it's i can't even right, right. Yeah, no. i can't even comprehend even trying to even try and have that decision that decision like exactly exactly well you don't want must to be so brave fathers. to leave yeah you know patrick henry said give me liberty or give me death well north korea says yes <laughs> yeah. you'll get death and not only that but your family members will get death yeah so i mean there's no like revolution the, the the show I was watching on Netflix about that the the guy was talking that what was saying that when he was younger when he was a child um, he was living like in a camp and he was encouraged by the authority 
the authority were like giving him stuff so he would give information about his parents like my par- my parents did this mm. wrong or did this wrong yeah. and his entire family got executed because of what he was saying but what's interesting he said like i don't feel bad because i don't feel any attachment to them mm-hmm. because the the way he was brought up the, the concept of a loving family didn't exist he, he didn't understand it at this time so he, he doesn't even feel like Guilty. that he's done something bad to his parents because the whole concept of parents doesn't make sense like it's it's like it's it's a whole other level of brainwashing and conditioning right like yeah. it's well think about this so um i mean someone born in a prison camp um i mean that's already like a bad yeah, just that. life. Okay. So, and then you and your family members, I mean, you're, you're just battling over food um, and for survival. I mean, think about America earlier this year, people are battling over toilet paper. I mean, yeah. just, just think about if people actually like had to fight for food. I mean, it's, it's, it, it doesn't take long for people to get to the survival stage of just, mm-hmm. I need to survive. So at that point, your family doesn't really matter. Um, all right, but the thing is, so prison camp is one case, but just think about like everyday life with people who love each other and the family is together. And if you try to engage in any political activity, knowing that they can be punished. And actually that's an issue for the North Korean refugees who escape. Um, some of them don't speak out or they don't tell their stories because they know their family members can be punished. Um, so what some North Korean refugees will say is that even after they've escaped, they still don't feel free mm-hmm. because if they become public figures, they know their family members can be targeted. Um, so, and, and we've actually had it happen to some of the people around me that they started to get some attention and then the North Korean government would let them know that mainly through, um, agents that we know who you are and we know who your family members are. And sometimes the family members in North Korea will contact people who are here and say, you know, please stop speaking out, you know, please, because we might be in trouble uh, if you keep doing that. And sometimes people say, you know, can you please come back? Because if you don't come back, then the whole family will be in trouble. Uh, So so I want to put in the context that there have now been about 33,000 North Koreans who've escaped in the last two decades. And I know with podcasts, numbers are not really good, sorry. but about 33,000 over the last 20 years. Um, the, the high peak was in 2009, okay? The year 2000, so 11 years ago, about 2,900 North Korean refugees made it to South Korea in one year, okay? Mm-hmm. So 2,900 made it in mm-hmm. one year. Last year, that dropped to about 1,100, okay? mm-hmm. somewhere 1,050, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and now this year, only about 130 have made it. But the COVID, you know, again, is, uh, yeah. is a factor. So, uh, but the point of it is that they, the North Korean government cannot execute everybody's relatives now. Yeah. And now they're more likely to make an example. So like the gentleman I mentioned before who was an ambassador, okay, his family's going to get wiped out. Uh, North Korean refugees who are speaking out, I mean, they know their family members are at risk. Uh, so... Again, they can't punish everybody, but they can punish enough to to keep the others in line. Yeah. Talking about numbers, um, when I was going through the documents you you, you sent me, mm. uh, something that stand out was that seventy percent of the mm. refugees were women. What's the reason behind that? Yeah. That's yeah, so, a lot. 
Right. So the, the number is about 72%. And if you go back about 20 years ago, uh, at that time, they're mostly male because uh, they're mainly the elite who were escaping. Um, but because of the famines in the 1990s, you had more North Korean refugees looking to get out uh, of the country. Okay, so uh, there are a couple of main reasons why. Uh, number one is because of China. So there's an imbalance, imbalance in the number of men compared to women, mainly because of China's one-child policy for such a long time. So now there are lots of men in China looking for wives and they're looking to other countries and one country that's easy to look to is the country next door, uh, and that is North Korea. Uh, and then within China, there are some people who are, again, not my words, but you know, quote, unquote, are considered to be undesirable, um, handicapped or people with whatever, mental things. Um, so their family members are looking for a wife for them. And then there are others who are considered to be undesirable, such as farmers. So they're looking for wives, and North Korea is one place. Okay, that's one. Another thing is that there are, um, and again, I don't want anyone to misinterpret it as my words. I'm just examining and from yeah. what I hear. Okay, so um, that for some North Koreans, China is a step up. Um, so as far as just being able to take care of themselves, to be able to, to make money. Um, so for some people, it is a step up. Um, so again, I'm not passing judgment on it, okay? And then there are, for women, a lot of them will be recruited because uh, whatever, into like the sex industry, uh, in addition to being wives of Chinese men. Uh, and then there are other reasons such as, um, if you are, okay, think about people. Um, you know, you graduate from high school or you graduate from college, you're not thinking about your life and which direction you're gonna go in. If you're a North Korean, uh, 16 or 17 years old, that's typically when they graduate from college, uh, sorry, graduate from high school, then now is the time for you to make a decision. Uh, now, the government controls about the number of people who can go to college and they want to choose who can. So, first of all, probably people considered part of the elite or middle class or whatever uh, will be the first ones who have the first uh, ability, first choice to, to go. Every, almost every North Korean man who's not in college will then um, be conscripted into the military. Oh, and right. it's uh, at least about 10 years. Uh, I forgot the exact, nine, 10 years, whatever, something like that. So if you are a young person about to start with your life, either graduate from high school or graduate from college, if you're a young man, you're out marching for the military, for the regime. Right. Uh, if you're a young woman, you don't have that same um, you know, responsibility uh, some women serve, but uh, most of them do not. Um, so they're considered to be not as important. So, I mean, at that age when young people are looking about what they're going to do, some of the young women who realize that they don't have a real opportunity in North Korea will then look for, you know, start to consider to escape. And let's, let's keep in mind, still a small number of people, North Korea, 25, 24 million population, uh, we're talking about like 30-something thousand who've escaped to South Korea. Yeah. China, the numbers are not as reliable, so I, I, won't, I won't cite them. Uh, but so, so then that's another factor that if you're a young man, if you're not at the military or probably at some government, whatever, facility or whatever, like, where, where's Kim? Somebody find him and kill him because we don't know yeah. why, where he is now. 
So, I mean, there's that aspect of it. And then there's just some other things such as if you are a man who's the head of your family, you're unlikely to escape because the family home is probably in your name and you escape and then your whole family might be in trouble, um, even homeless. Um, um, so, so if you're in that role, it might be difficult. If you are a young man, probably unlikely because you're in the military. Uh, if you're a young woman, a little freer compared to others. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah, so there are a variety of reasons, and, and there are more. I'm sure people can yeah, say yeah. more, but those are some of the main reasons. It's interesting you said about the social classes. I didn't realize there would be the elite people and oh, yeah. middle class and working class. I didn't realize there would be that as well. I kind of yeah. presumed that everybody would be on the same level almost. Okay, well, let me, okay, I'll, I'll be clear about it. So, um, in the 1950s, uh, the North Korean government came up with something they call Songbu. And this is the basically three classes in the society. And so at the top are the elite or trusted. Um, in the middle, I think they call, I forgot what the, um, it's like um, core class, I believe is the name for the people like in the middle. And then at the bottom are despised. Okay, so um, you, you, yeah, so you can guess <laughs> what kind of features they have. Yeah. Um, so, so um, yeah, so the elite, I mean, obviously, I mean, they're the ones closest to the regime, related to them, probably. Um, so they have the best of the best in North Korea. Um, a lot of them don't choose to escape because, again, their family members can suffer as a result of them escaping. Um, and also for some of them, um, it's, it's better to be at the top of North Korea than at the bottom of, you know, South Korea or China. So, mm. yeah, I'm not passing judgment, just saying, you know, no, just yeah. the reality. Uh, and then they're the ones who are in the middle who, I mean, so, I mean, life is okay for them, but again, they're not at the top. Um, and then uh, the spies. So, in fact, the spies. So, in, in, the, in the 1990s, uh, it's estimated that anywhere from 500,000 to 2 million North Koreans starved to death uh, during the 1990s. And, and this whole thing, because Russia was basically, you know, subsidizing North Korea oh, until yeah. the okay. yeah, Soviet Union collapsed. All right, so then um, anywhere from 500,000 to 2 million died. And um, apparently the North Korean government wasn't that concerned because a lot of them were those despised people. So why should they be concerned about those despised people? Like, the, and I don't know which Netflix thing. I actually, I'm like, last man on the earth not on netflix uh but but whatever that um, you mentioned he was in a prison camp well he was in a prison camp he was part of that despised class right okay. so i mean so they didn't care about him hmm. yeah so it must be it must be interesting as well to try and get the facts and figures because i guess they don't tell you like because you know as you said between 500,000 and 2 million that's such a huge you know it's not like a 10,000 difference that's a huge difference yes exactly but i guess getting any kind of stats and real information must be kind of impossible or yeah, really hard yeah. at least yeah well with north korea i mean it's like if you're watching a baseball game and it said the dodgers score somewhere between eight to 16 runs and yeah you know, <laughs> the devil ray score something between five to 14 or yeah. like, like the u.s election now i mean not not exact numbers so, uh but you know but that's that's the reality of north korea because north korea is not going to report any bad information yeah. about it uh, so these are all estimates and that's why it's such a broad you know, 500,000 to 2 million. Uh, now, I do know one of the former North Korean elite who says that it's closer to 2 million. Um, and he was in a position to know. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't want to say who he was, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but, but anyway, 500,000, 2 million. Uh, the point is that the government didn't really care about the despised. Uh, 
um, dying off. So to get back to your organization. So you met a few refugees when you got there. Mm. You obviously that had been in big impact on, on, on you. Uh, and because of your previous work, you, I feel like you, you, you I guess you're the kind of person that you get somewhere, you realize there is a problem mm. and you know you can do something about it, you're going to get involved, right? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's just who you way. are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even though in the beginning I didn't think I could do anything, of course I was still looking to see what could I do. Yeah. Um, and in fact, part of this goes back to, I mean, again, Frederick Douglass, I mean, do something. Um, and when I was in radio, there's another talk show host who I knew who he would always ask, what are you going to do about it? After all the talking, all the analysis, all the smart comments, is there one thing that you're going to do? And it resonated with me immediately because my view for a long time has been, you know what? If there's only one thing you can do, okay, you can make that small difference. So I'm not like talking about changing the world, but if you can have some kind of an impact, then you should do it. Uh, so so I, I do <laughs> when yeah. possible. So yeah, so I'm meeting North Korean refugees, not thinking about getting involved, not thinking about what the particular thing I could do, but still just kind of observing. And, and I remember the moment. I mean, I'm sitting at my desk in Seoul at the um, Center for Free Enterprise, And I'm reading about North Korean refugees. And I remember saying, you know what? Somebody needs to do something about this. And then just like slamming the newspaper on my desk, why don't I do something? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm hoping somebody would do something. There's this great big problem just 30 miles down the road. I mean, I should be able to do something. So I, I, I was like, from that moment, okay, I'm going to do something. And I mean, it's kind of funny. The first thing I did, I mean, I'm working at a think tank. So I contacted one of the leading analysts on North Korea and asked, can you come over to my organization and give a talk? And I was a nobody. I mean, and like this whole North Korean field, I mean, no, I, mean I was, I, I, of course I was a nobody. I hadn't done anything. Um, he came over and gave a talk about the North Korean um, system and about the rise of markets in North Korea um, and how it was challenging the old structure of the country where they relied on the government to take care of them, that people were starting to take care of themselves. So he gave that talk. Um, and then I'm like paying more attention to North Korea and just trying to see how can I make a difference. Now that was September, 2011. Okay. So nine years ago. Yeah. And then uh, at the beginning of 2012, about 30 North Korean refugees were captured in China. Now, at this point, I knew what that meant, that they could be tortured, that they could be executed if they were returned to North Korea, that their family members could be executed. And I'm like, okay, this is it. I'm going to get involved. So I started going in front of the Chinese embassy here in South Korea. And, I, and again, I'm not, not the main person, but I joined with the protest being held. And almost everybody there was either South Korean or a North Korean refugee. Uh, protesting now, of course, there were others, you know, Westerners and others who would come in. But uh, I started going every day, and then one day there was a South Korean politician. Her name is Park Sun Young, 
she had started a hunger strike. And I went over to her in her little tent and I told her, I'm going to get involved. And she's like, oh, that sounds nice. I said, no, no, no. I mean, <laughs> life-changing moment. I'm going to make a difference. And wow. she's like, okay, if you're going to do, then you know, you can talk to one of my staffers. I said, okay, yeah, but I want to make sure you understand that I'm going to make a difference. She didn't know who I was. She didn't know yeah. I had done other things and been an activist in other ways. <laughs> Just some guy at a protest saying I'm going to get involved. Uh, and I did. And, and the way I really started uh, was with uh, actually two different tracks. One was with her because she had started the school for North Korean refugee adolescents. And I became the volunteer coordinator recruiting people. What I was the... I forgot the exact title, but anyway, my role was to find volunteers because she asked me if I would be the teacher, and I said, no, I don't think I'm the person to do that, hmm. uh, but I think I can find people who can teach English to the children there. Uh, the other track was I also, that same day, I met a North Korean refugee who said she wanted to tell her story, um, and so I became one of her mentors, and then she got invited to give a TED Talk. And then oh, I was the co-chair of the committee to get her onto TED. And then we were successful. She was the first North Korean refugee to give a talk on TED. So, so I'm doing these two different tracks and just trying to find a way to get more deeply involved. And then the next thing is that uh, I met a South Korean lady named Ungu Lee. And she actually had like a long background working with North Korean refugees. Uh, research about North Korean refugees, and we were just talking that, yeah, you know, maybe there's some way we can work together. And then, um, you know, I told her about the work that I was doing at the school, and then one day I just said, you know what, I got it. Let's do the same thing I'm doing for those children, but let's do that with adults. Right. Let's help them, because she had been telling me that a lot of the adults were struggling in South Korea uh, because of English. So then that was the beginning of starting this little organization. Hmm. Yeah, it's in, it's it's interesting because you you when when we think about it, it's like I escaped, I made it, but I guess mm -hmm. that's just the beginning of a whole new uh, escaping is just part one. Mm -hmm. But before you can have a normal life, if you mm -hmm. if you can recover from that, you're a long way from 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 freedom in a sense. Exactly. Yeah, and and believe me, I love the freedom aspect of it. And actually, when I first got involved with this, I was thinking maybe I could get involved with escapes. But then I realized someone would have to come rescue me because I'm sure I would get caught yeah. <laughs> <laughs> after a short time trying to help other people escape. Uh, but um, but actually, uh, kind of a serious story. So there was a I don't know if you know the case that there's an East German soldier who in 1961 just jumped over one of the kind of fences and escaped over to the West German side. And it was, I mean, it's like, if, if people look it up, 1961 East German soldier um, escaped, uh, the, you can find the photo of him jumping over. And I think there was a video actually. Well, so it was really dramatic and people just hailed it as like this incredible thing. But if you check in the rest of his story, he suffered from like alcohol abuse and depression And then he committed suicide about three decades later. And it was just one of those reminders that just getting to freedom, of course, is a, is a great thing. But for many people, that's not the end of the story. He still had like you no know, guilt about leaving his family behind. 
And so a lot of North Korean refugees struggle with, again, leaving a family behind and guilt about that, and then about adjusting to this new hyper-competitive society here in South Korea, um, and then about if they want to become, if they want to go around the world, I mean, English is a barrier in that case. So there are lots of things that, you know, so it's like uh, escaping is the first battle, but adjusting is the second battle. Is there discrimination from South Korean to North Korean? I really wish someone South Korean here could <laughs> be here to talk about it. <laughs> no, I mean, no, just from a feeling. Like, is that, I don't know. Well, okay, I'll say this, that, uh, oh, definitely yes. And okay. uh, I, mean, I, I think, I mean, there are different levels. Uh, there's apathy and, <laughs> you know, uh, and then there's outright just dislike. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's more about apathy than outright discrimination. Okay. Uh, it's more that, uh, the way I like to put it, is that South Koreans tend to look down on anybody from a country with a lower GDP. Uh, okay? Oh, okay, so that your, you know, your country is sorry and lazy. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> and of course, things are changing, but that was definitely a general view in the past. Um, I think it's more that um, North Korea is a problem that there are national security laws that you should not contact, I mean, cannot contact people in North Korea. Uh, a lot of South Koreans in the past were brainwashed into North Korea. North Koreans have devil, uh, have horns, they're like devils. Mm -hmm. I mean, so both sides had different things going on. Uh, now, of course, South Korea opened, now South Korea was also under dictatorship uh, until the 1980s. Um, so, and it was under martial law until 1987. And of course, they had fought a war, and there were all kinds of like North Korean spies coming in, and you know doing things. So a lot of things were going on. Uh, so you fast forward to today, it's been more that it's like, what's the benefit? I mean, if you're South Korean, what's the benefit of engaging with North Korean refugees? Um, and then another like real challenge is that South Korea is a society where networks are really important, and of course, things are changing. Things are always changing. Uh, but generally, networks have been important where you where you went to school, uh, the people that you knew from the school, um, relatives, and you can call up an uncle. So all those kinds of things South Koreans can't do. I'm sorry, North Korean refugees can't really do, and they don't really fit into the South Korean society. Um, so, um, so yeah, so lots of them will struggle. So so yeah, is are there South Koreans who hate North Korean refugees? I'm sure there are some. Yeah. Uh, there's some who kind of, you know, don't really feel like they fit in their lives. Are there some who just are apathetic about it? So I think there's a broad range about it. But what it comes down to is when you are a North Korean refugee applying for a job, and as soon as you put North Korean on your job application, because they'll ask, you know, where did you go to school and, you know, mm -hmm. university and all that, and uh, hometown or where you're born. So when those things pop up, it's almost like, oh, why do we have to deal with this? You yeah. know? Uh, and I'll just give an example. So, and oh, and this actually, wow, this will uh, explain from our example. So we have this little organization. And early this year, and from, from late last year and early this year, we're looking to move to a different office. Uh, kind of had to because the lease at the other place is run out. Okay, so uh, we talked to several real estate agents and Um, a couple of them were interested until they found out we we're dealing with North Korean refugees. And then one of them just told um, our agent, point blank, I don't want to deal with North Koreans. Okay? Uh -huh. So they can't come here. 
and we had a couple of others. And then the agent started telling my co-director, please don't mention North Korean. Just tell them you have like a little organization helping with education. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we actually had some of the blatant discrimination like that. And then a couple of others just kind of like, you know, we're not, yeah, not really interested or they will stop returning our, our yeah. calls. But then we moved because the, the, the um, landlord who accepted us um, not only embraced what we were doing, but actually cut the deposit required from about wow. whatever thirty thousand dollars to twenty thousand dollars without us asking. So, so my my point is that yes, definitely there's still discrimination, and we we even we felt it. And I mean, I'm an American. My co-director Ungu Lee is a South Korean, um, but we even felt it. Um, as leading up a, a North Korean refugee-related organization. And then another thing, well, anyway, so those, those are the main things I say in response to that. So, so yes, there is that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then I'll just tell one very quick story. So we had a speech uh, at our 10th speech contest uh, last year. One of the North Korean refugees said that he sent out his resume to 104, I believe was the number, of Korean companies. Only two responded. And one of them responded that they were interested, but then once he told them he was from North Korea, they said, oh, okay, all right, uh, okay, uh, we'll be in touch. And, you know, looking at his watch, he says, I'm still waiting. (laughs) And the only one, and he ended up getting hired, uh, was a North Korean refugee-related organization. But all the South Korean places he applied to, so he says if he puts North Korean on it, he can expect that he'll have no chance. Yeah, yeah. So escaping is really just the beginning of a long journey. That, but it, 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 yeah, it's still, still a lot of work to do before right. getting a, a normal life. In, if I can mm. say that. Right. Um, so to, to get back into the organization, mm. uh, so you teach English to North Korean, so they can, you can, you help them to find a job and and. And, and thing like that, uh, but you only work with volunteers, right? Uh, okay, so so yeah, our staff. We now um, we're not rich, but at least now we've been able to put together enough money to have uh, two full time people and two uh, three part timers. Uh, two part timers now. Mm-hmm. Um, and but uh, yes, but uh, in uh, in our history, we've had 460 North Korean refugees study English public speaking, and um, career development with more than 1,050 volunteer tutors, coaches, and mentors. And yes, and it was absolutely a fantastic experience. Uh, So many wonderful stories, success stories, um, just, yeah, really, just really inspiring. Uh, It's been just, yeah, just wonderful, wonderful experience. But yes, but the the, the, the folks helping, the helpers are volunteers. Now, next year, we're going to change our mission uh, a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of it is because of this COVID-19. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's a bit more difficult to have like those one-to-one tutoring sessions All right, okay. um, face-to-face. Uh, now, it's a lot easier for North Korean refugees to just go online and to find people because more people are you know, trying, uh, looking for them. And so we've concluded it's better for them to just go online and find people because we cannot offer the kind of special experience that we've been offering before in terms of tutoring. So from next year, we're going to switch the mission 
I, I should say refocus to focus on public speaking uh, okay. because that's the other part of our program that we've been doing for years. And actually, it's the part that uh, I really love. I mean, I love the other one too, but but uh, this one it require less manpower, um, and it will give the refugees uh, more preparation for telling their stories. So, um, so yeah, anyway, so we're going to be changing next year a bit. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm still going to ask my the question I okay, had. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no um, but anyone could volunteer until oh. now. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, the thing, that, uh, the, the way we did it is that we had kind of um, what I call it is a self-cleaning oven. And mm -hmm. that is that the refugees would choose the volunteers they want to work with. And we'll still have some aspect of that. Uh, but they could choose the people they wanted to work with. But that also meant that they could unchoose the people mm -hmm. at any time. So the volunteers would know just because you got chosen doesn't mean that the refugee has to continue with you. Because uh, the way we set it up is that on average, the refugees were working with about three volunteers. And so um, it meant that you know, they can, they're not stupid and they don't want to waste their time. They can see who's prepared and who's not, hmm. who's serious and who's not. Uh, and we'll still have that kind of aspect. So we're not going to eliminate that. Just we're going to operate a bit differently than before and just focus on right. one mission. Because it's kind of like um, when you have both a program that's focused on tutoring and is focused on protecting the privacy at every point of the refugee because again the kind of issues we mentioned before yeah um, and then you have another part of the program where it's like okay let's tell your story <laughs> let's talk about whatever you need to talk about in order to be prepared for being on stage it's kind of like having a microwave freezer you know it just <laughs> you know, those two things don't go together yeah, so, right. <laughs> yeah, so we did the best that we could for a number of years to do both things, but now it's just become, as we, part of it's because we've grown. Uh, so mm -hmm. now we really have to make a choice and we decide. Yeah, you're scaling and you need to adjust your operation. That's right. <laughs> just like a company. Or... That's right. And so, yeah. and with uh, COVID 19, I mean, it makes more sense to engage in public speaking compared to the one to one, face to face, in person tutoring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so COVID-19 kind of helped kill that, among other things in this world, so. Yeah. Mm. I have, I don't know if you're nearly finished, but I still have lots of questions. Okay, please, go ahead. Um, time. Yeah, this is the thing, because I've never spoken to somebody who is, who knows about this to be able to ask questions that you mm. you'd get like a real honest answer about mm. um no so my next question was you said about if people grew up in north korea and then they put on their cv which school they went to and which university mm. things like that what is the schooling system like in north korea because mm. again it's something i have no idea about what's yeah it's propaganda i mean that's it so um uh i think from about the age and, and the next North Korea experts are going to kill me on this. <laughs> but I think from like the age of like three or four, basically they're taken from their families and just that's the beginning of you are the child of the leader of the country and that people will know the birthdays and the whole history of the leaders and know more about them than their own families. Uh, but no, but they have an education system and they're, you know, I mean, I, I got which grade they go up to, but they, same thing, you know, elementary school and you know, go on to high school. Uh, 
But the main point to know is that, yes, it's about just drilling into the heads, the whole history. So if you, when you talk to a North Korean refugee, uh, okay, wait, where are the two of you from, by the way? So I'm from England and Jeremy's from England. France. Okay, all right. So if someone asks you about, like, you know, one of the early leaders of your respective countries and, you know, when's the birthday? <laughs> you know, when's this? Tell me, just give me, I mean, most people can't do it. Yeah. But with your typical North Korean refugee, I mean, they can immediately tell you Kim Il-sung was born on April 15, 1912, and they can just do the whole history about them. Uh, same thing with uh, Kim Jong-il. They can just go across the whole history, just every detail, because they had to know it, because it was more important to know about the history of those people compared to knowing about a subject. That's how you're able to pass in school. That's how you're able to be the top student by you know about their history better than anybody else. By being uh, a good citizen, I guess, yes. in <laughs> quote unquote. A, a good brainwashed citizen yeah. who can just recite about the history of North Korea um, and about the leaders and every little story about them. Uh, so I think the main thing is to think uh, education equals propaganda. Now, if anyone's, uh, I don't want to take away from you guys, but if anyone's interested, I did a podcast with Yundi Park. She's one of the North Korean refugees back in 2014. We used to have a podcast together before she became international, uh, published a book and all that. Uh, but we did a podcast about education in North Korea. And the title of it was Two Plus Two Equals Kill American Soldiers. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So the point of it is that education is propaganda in North Korea. Hmm. And now, actually, I know some people who were teachers in North Korea. And uh, I asked them the question, how do you feel that, no, I mean, did you know that you were spreading propaganda? And so many of them said, of course I knew. I knew that most of what I was saying were lies. But what could I do? If I didn't tell them, then what would happen to me? So... They knew they were spreading lies and just repeating lies to people, um, but th they had no choice. Yeah. And actually, I'll tell you, an interesting book to read is a book by, um, and a, well, he's Russian, I guess Russian-American now. Uh, his name is Michael Malice. And the book is, oh, I just forgot the name of the book, but it's like um, the um, Kim Jong-il, oh, Dear Reader. Okay, Dear Reader by Michael Malice. And he tells the, the story of uh, from the perspective of Kim Jong-il, North Korea's second dictator. And what really interested me about this book is that, you know, I'm pretty good with history, but as I was reading his book, hearing the story from Kim Jong-il's side, again, former second dictator of North Korea, hearing everything from his side, there were a couple of times I was wondering, well, what really happened? Right? Because, and, but the point is that if you're from your Korea and you only hear one side of the story, the schools, the propaganda, the, the large billboards all over the country, every single 24-7 uh, propaganda, you know, wh what else can you believe? You know, so it's like a miracle when the people, you know, just start to realize something is wrong. 
Yeah, uh, and what else can you tell? Like, yeah. even if the teacher knows he's spreading lies, mm. okay. Right. But what else can you say when you've never seen anything else? You have no idea what's outside of the bubble. Like, yes. I know I'm lying, but I don't know the truth in a sense. Yeah. It's like, okay, well. Yes, exactly. And I want to mention two things. One, if anyone checks the book, you can see my name on page 417. <laughs> Kim Jong-il's enemies list. <laughs> so, you can, yeah, oh yeah, what a badge of honor. So, And then the second thing I mentioned uh, about this issue about you know, what can you do? A um, couple of years ago, I met a former North Korean customs agent who his job was to track down runaways, the people trying to escape. And he spoke at an event that I organized about, wow, about seven years ago. And one question someone in the audience asked him is, do you feel guilty that you kill people? And he just answered, no. Because if I had not killed them, I would have been killed. So I was just part of the system, basically the whole thing, like just following orders. So the following orders is the soldiers, following orders, the teachers, following orders, business people, following orders, government. So everyone's just following orders in North Korea. So there's no room for you to question because once you question, you're considered to be part of the enemy and you, will probably be downgraded if you're part of the elite down to despised where you can lose everything. Yeah, I guess it's no was the word self well any kind of self anyway, mm. but like self judgment, self decision. Like it's mm. you're being told how to live live your life. If, right. If right. In fact one that. funny thing a couple of North Korean refugees I've talked to have said that um actually it's funny. Um so one of the refugees she said that after she escaped and she got to South Korea people would ask her what she wanted. And she's like, why are you asking me that? I mean, because she had never really been in a position. I have no to, idea what I want. Yeah, to think about <laughs> what she wants, because she had always been told, do this, go there, report uh -huh. there, be at this place. Um, so for the first time, it was really just up to her. So she didn't know how to answer the question when people would ask her, well, what do you want to do? <laughs> yeah. With your life. Yeah, it's, it's really deep. It's really, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. I am just loving this conversation. Um, I'm just going to say as well, we're going to, in the podcast notes, I'm, I'm telling Jeremy this now, he doesn't know I'm saying this, but we're going to link all of the podcast episodes, books, articles, everything that you're talking mm. about. We'll leave everything linked. So if anyone's like super interested, they can go ahead and read those things. Mm. Yeah, I, I, got a, I, I got a few books this afternoon when I was watching some of your resources. I got a few books already, so I'm going to mm. be reading about that. Yeah, but I, I want to remind everybody, the most important link, which is love, T-N-K-R, backslash, donate. <laughs> love, T-N-K-R, backslash, donate. <laughs> I was going to ask about that. Like, what's the best way for people to help, oh, you yeah. know, listeners from all around the world, from wherever? What's the best way they can help you guys? Yeah, that's it. Love, T-N-K-R. Oh, wait, what am I saying? Let me make sure I'm saying the link right. Love, T-N-K-R.org. <laughs> Backslash donate, lovetnkr.org, backslash donate. And we started calling it Love TNKR because so many refugees were telling us, I love TNKR. Uh. So, so then we said, so we made a website out of it. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, but you work partner with, I don't know if it's a company association that doubles up all the donation, no? Atlas. Okay. Something. Oh, no, no, not them. No, they, 
No, that was something in the past. Oh, okay. um, yes, but uh, yeah, I, I wish we could have that all the time. All right. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so my final question is, are you at risk for talking openly about this and for trying to help North Koreans? Like, are you, I don't know, are you known I'm by the North Koreans? Are you, <laughs> like, are you scared? Are you, do people, I mean, obviously people know who you are because you do a lot of public speaking and things. How, yeah. I don't even know what my question is, but <laughs> how, what, why, whatever the question is, talk to me about that. <laughs> oh, I, I really wish I could be a hero now and say I'm like targeted and I'm in hiding and all that kind of thing. But, uh, um, well, I'll, I'll put it like this, that I have been named in like some of the North Korea propaganda videos and also I've been told by a couple of North Koreans who escaped and they had worked in one of the embassies abroad that when they were there that they had come across my name and they knew who I was when they were part of the North Korean government still. Uh, but I think I don't have to worry. And the reason for that is that North Korea has much bigger targets than me. Uh, so first of all, like I mentioned, Taeyong Ho is one of the former elite. I mean, he and others like him are the ones who are hated. Um, then at a second level are the ones who are headed in North Korea's direction, sending air balloons and information and, and things that the North Korean re uh, regime really feels like threatens it um, as, an, as a country, as a cult. So they hate them at the next level. And then the level below them, I would say, are the North Korean refugees just kind of speaking out against them. Um, so for example, there are a couple of TV shows here in South Korea where the North Korean refugees um, just talk about their lives and um, kind of like talk show kind of format. Um, all of the people on that show, as soon as they're on it, they're told um, you've been put on North Korea's target list just because the people are speaking out and uh, uh, the regime doesn't know how big they're going to get, but they start to try to figure out who they are and try to figure out who their family members are in North Korea. Uh, and then way down the list are <laughs> people <laughs> like me. <laughs> yeah, so before they get to your name, it's going to take a while. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll be like in a senior citizen home. <laughs> You know, where's Casey Lartig? Uh -huh. <laughs> so, but actually, uh, I've written, uh, I'm also a columnist with the Korea Times here, and I wrote a column one day saying that, you know, I kind of hope people will stop asking me this question, you know, because the North Korean government might be saying, why, does people, why do people keep thinking? <laughs> I'm sorry maybe, if it just got you in more trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe maybe we need to kill this guy because everybody <laughs> thinks he's so, you know, threatening to us, but we don't know who he is. <laughs> This guy must really be tricky. So, so, so yeah. So, but no, it's okay. Like I said, I'm, I'm sure I'm so. But my relatives, of course, they're concerned. You know, mm. you know, it's like, son, yeah. maybe you should come home. You know, North yeah. Korean government. Yeah, but I, 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 don't feel like I'm in any kind of threatened position. Um, you know, like I said, they want to get to others before they want to touch me. They're yeah. more likely to try to kill the delivery man bringing me my newspaper column than to kill me. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I think I'm okay. On a more personal level, uh, do you feel this is your, don't was the right word, uh, this is the, the, the main project that you're going to be working on for a few years or, or you have, I don't know, plan maybe to 
come back to the US at one point? Or? You know what? Uh, six years ago, when I was really getting into this, I got like the most wonderful job offer to go back to the USA, like political commentator, and I could just be on TV and have my own podcast, and they would take care of everything, and I'm just a talent. I just sit down and talk, and it sounded really, really great, and I really had to reflect on it, especially the salary, you know, I mean, it was really all that kind of stuff, um, but I love what I'm doing, and it's been just the most wonderful experience uh, doing this, and I'm not sure what could pull me from it, um, because, I mean, you know, the people that I'm dealing with, the work that I'm doing, um, just when I wake up, I'm ready to get to work. Um, just always feel like there's something that I can do. Uh, so, and, and also because it's something that I created that I'm yeah. doing. So other jobs has been like, oh, okay, you know, can you be one of the staffers? Can you do this? Can, you know, can you join us? Uh, but this is something that I created, which means also I had the power to change, such as changing mm -hmm. for next year when I did an analysis and just realized that going forward, it'd be better for us to have a different approach. So, yeah, I mean, I love it. And also I feel like it kind of brings together all the different things. So as far as like being a public commentator, speaker, writer, organizer, uh, educational freedom, um, all those things seem to come together uh, mm. with this. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure what else I would do. That's perfect then. <laughs> I think that's the thing as well. Like no amount of money can pull you away from something that you're you know you love doing every single day like that's way more important than a paycheck doing something yeah. that you know well, it's easy or whatever like you know, I, I wouldn't say no about. amount of money <laughs> I, wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't go quite there <laughs> but I'll definitely say just like because um, basically the offer in the U.S. would have like tripled quadrupled my salary and and it's not like here where I'm constantly like the fundraiser for my organization. I just show up to work in the, mm. the job that, yeah. So, but I won't say no amount of money because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> at a certain point, <laughs> I'm now, I'm no longer an organizer. I'm now a donor. <laughs> yeah, that could you be a way to do it. want to do the work instead. <laughs> so, but no, but I, I really love the work that I'm doing. And uh, yeah, and that's why, I mean, like yesterday, Again, uh, I, I moderated a speech yesterday and um, interviewed with a reporter, with a researcher, refugee visiting, South Koreans visiting. Um, I welcome, come on in. Let's see if you can find a way to get involved. And now I will just say I'm involved in a couple of other activities. So um, I, I'm also um, the co-chair of a committee to raise awareness about a, a case so in 1969, there was an airplane that was hijacked from South Korea to North Korea. And so um, by a North Korean agent. And 30, about 50 people were on the airplane. 11 of them were kept in North Korea and never allowed to leave. And 39 were free. And the 11 that they kept were all professionals who could help North Korea in some way, such as TV personnel, I mean, TV producer or whatever, that kind of thing. And so I'm the co-chair of the committee because one of the um, um, children of one of the people on that airplane has been trying to get his father free. Uh, his name is Wang In Cho. Uh, so I've been trying to raise awareness about that case. And we're, on December 11th, we're going to be having an event here in Seoul to mark the 51st anniversary of that. And we've been doing that for a couple of years now. Um, 
Also, I was recently named the country chair of the um, Giving Tuesday organization based in the U.S. You know, the whole thing after, give, after Black Friday that you should give. Well, we're bringing that idea to South Korea, and I'm the country chair here to do that. And so I'll, I'll raise awareness about that. I'm a columnist with the Korea Times. I also teach public speaking at the Seoul University of Foreign Studies. So I, I have a lot to do. Yeah, you got <laughs> and, a lot on your plate. <laughs> and, and I'm enjoying it. Uh, and obviously this, this work is at the centerpiece of all of that, the foundation yeah. of all of that work. So. It is pretty inspiring and, and, and amazing what you're doing because you're changing life every day. And, and you're, like you said at the beginning, like, you might not save the world, but you're helping people. Mm. And yeah. that's what matters, right? I mean... <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, actually, uh, my co-director and I gave a TEDx talk a couple of years ago. Um, I forgot. Something like, you can't save the world? I forgot the exact title, but something like... Because I keep running into people who kept saying, I'm going to change the whole world. I'm going to save the whole world. It's like, you know what? The world doesn't want to be saved by you. <laughs> okay? So... But if you can do something to have an impact, to make a difference, that's already a great accomplishment. And if you can make the world a, a better place to live in, that's already a great accomplishment. So yeah, I prefer just doing something very practical, um, really apparent about the work that we're doing uh, instead of something theoretical or abstract or whatever. So yeah, so then that's why I never get tired of this work. <laughs> uh, I got one last question. So we... At the end of each episode, we ask a question to our guests. Um, is if you could have a conversation with a person that you think is like the definition of an interesting person, dead or alive, uh, who would you pick and why? <laughs> it could be anyone. It could literally be your your dad or a celebrity or a random person you met yesterday whatever ah see that's tough because <laughs> if i want to talk to somebody i do what you did i reach out to them and i talk to them <laughs> so <laughs> let me think who would i want to talk to that i cannot talk to ah i can't think of anybody because like i said uh I, I'm, that, so i'm that hyper aggressive student who sits in the front row in class <laughs> and raises his hand. I'm that hyper-aggressive student when a professor posts office hours, I'm there. Um, I mean, so who would I talk to? Yeah, uh, I can't really think of anybody because I would just try to reach out to them and if they don't answer me, to help Wait, if you them. could reach out then, that's fine. <laughs> if, even yeah, if you yeah. just reach out, that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who would I reach out to? I don't know because anybody I want to talk to, I'll, I'll try to talk to them. I can't think. And then if they're dead, I don't know. Who would I talk to? All right. Dead. So I can, I can, refra I can rephrase okay, then. Yeah. On all the person you've been talking to in your life, who was the most interesting? Okay. So um, I, I'll talk about somebody who's had a major impact on me. Uh, his name is Howard Fuller. And he was, um, I mean, he's alive. I mean, he's in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And he was an activist back in the 1960s. He was called the most dangerous black man in North Carolina by the governor of the state. And um, he basically he was involved in social work. Uh, sorry, community organizing was like his degree. Uh, I think PhD actually. Um, 
he was involved in a number of causes, I mean, against police brutality and um, all kinds of uh, helping people out of poverty. So he's involved in many things. But then in the 1980s, he began to realize that education is something he should be focused on. That uh, especially young black men, um, black children, but especially young black children, uh, were having lots of trouble in school and he wanted to do something about it. Uh, now, his first big measure was to create a separate school system in Milwaukee, which you know the state just said, you can't do that. Uh, and, but he changed, and but he began to just focus on education to the point that he became the superintendent of schools in Milwaukee in, I think, maybe 1992 or so. And I met him in the year 2000. And at that time, he was starting an organization called the Black Alliance for Educational Options. Now, as I said, he, he was a firebrand from the 1960s. You watch a speech by him, and it's just fire and brimstone. I mean, I mean, he's just, I mean, just, uh, uh, but so many insights from him. And I learned so much from working with him. And he's surprised when I say this. Because, I mean, I like recite things that he said. And he's like, I said that? <laughs> <laughs> and so somebody actually remembered that. Uh, but I learned lots of little lessons. I mean, so because if you are an activist, one thing you need to realize is that not everybody's going to be with you. Mm -hmm. um, and even the people that you may think you're trying to help or to engage with. And he said one time, um, look, if you are planning a meeting for 100 people, but only three people show up, you have three people to work with. Don't forget That's about the point. other 97 people. Do something with the ones who are there. And if you can't do something with three people, you probably couldn't do anything with 100. So, uh, and so he's just like practical. And so, and I think that's one reason that I could really like, um, you know, identify with the things that he was saying, because I like to be practical just not kind of pie in the sky. So if there's somebody I'd want to talk to, it would be Howard Fuller. And if you wanted to talk to him, I'd be happy to arrange an interview with him. Uh, That'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, he really, yeah, he's uh, yeah, quite a guy. So um, a lot of insight. But now, now he's got a range of views. And what's funny is that he's been attacked as a sellout. He's been attacked as an Uncle Tom. He's also been attacked as a Republican sellout. He's been attacked as like a black nationalist. He's been attacked from like so many different positions. And that's because he would just look at a situation and, and see what's the thing that he can do to make a difference. So regardless of ideology. Right. Yeah, so. Okay, well, add him to the list. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. I can let him know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for this amazing, amazing conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. I love talking to you. I think... I mean, it's clear why you're a, like a speaking personality because you're so fun to talk with and make things understandable for someone like me who doesn't know anything about this situation. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, honestly. I'm glad I reached out. <laughs> All right. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it also. And actually, I love this kind of format just talking yeah. with somebody and without worrying about the TV angles and all yeah. that. Stuff, so. <laughs> So thank you so much for everybody for listening. If you enjoyed it, make sure you go and say hello. Where can we find you on social media if anybody okay. wants to send you a message? Yeah, Casey Lartig. And also if they just type in TNKR Casey or love TNKR Casey, 
those are the places to find me. Um, it's not that difficult to find me once you know who I am. So <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and org, And there's a link there that says contact us and they can reach out to me there directly. Okay. Like I said, we'll leave all the links um, in the description box, thingamajig, and all the books and everything that you've talked about. We'll leave it all there for everybody to have all the information. So thank you once again. Thank you so much for everybody for listening. And we'll be back next Wednesday with a brand new episode. Thank you, guys. Bye.